This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. At around 6 p.m. on Christmas Day 2017, an officer from the Oak Bay Police Department would respond to a wellness check at an apartment building near Victoria, British Columbia. The building manager would give Constable Peter Ulanowski access to a locked apartment rented by a man named Andrew Barry. The scene that the constable found inside the apartment would cause him to close the door and step back into the hallway in shock and disbelief. These are the murders of four-year-old Aubrey Berry and her six-year-old sister, Chloe Berry. And this is True North True Crime. Welcome to episode 14 of True North True Crime. We want to start off this episode by wishing you all a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. We know that 2020 has been a challenging year to say the least for most people around the world. Yeah, no matter how you celebrate at this time of year, we hope you were able to find creative and safe ways to connect with the people you love. As some of you already know, we have started a Buy Me a Coffee campaign. We are an independent self-finance podcast, and if you feel like donating to the podcast, you can do so by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee slash tntcpod. It can be a one-time donation, or you can become a yearly member and an honorary producer of our podcast. Doing so allows you to help us create a better show for all of you. Yeah, thank you to Tyler, Marie, and Robin for donating some much-needed coffees, and to Alberta Bly and Amy's book reviews for becoming honorary producers of the podcast. We know this is a tough time for a lot of people, so if you aren't able to donate but want to help our podcast, you can give us a five-star review on Apple or simply tell a friend about True North True Crime, as well as subscribe to us on Spotify or subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. So today's episode is a pretty challenging one to get through. We know we have a content disclaimer at the top of the show, but we want to add an additional one here. This episode deals with the brutal murder of two children. It is hard to listen to at times. We know that even long-time true crime listeners can struggle with child murder episodes, so we wanted to give you a heads up on that. We also want to be conscious of the reality that a mother, a family, and a community are still very much in mourning due to these events and the following court case. So there will be a time in this episode where we will again warn listeners when we are getting into somewhat graphic subject matter. We put today's episode together using publicly available news articles as well as publicly available family court and British Columbia Supreme Court documents. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the brutal murder of four-year-old Aubrey Berry and her six-year-old sister, Chloe Berry. 
This double murder took place on Christmas Day 2017 in the city of Victoria, British Columbia. Victoria is the capital city of British Columbia and is located on the southern tip of Vancouver Island. Victoria is built on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking people of the Coast Salish First Nations. Victoria has a population of just under 400,000 people. It is a stunning city, and it has beautiful views, cool old buildings, and an overall good quality of life. The city does struggle with crime and crime related to addiction, and there has always been kind of a seedy underbelly to the city, but for most people, it's a pretty good place to call home. Victoria usually has a murder rate in the single digits, with a low of two murders in 2019 and a high of eight murders in 2015. The crime we are going to be talking about takes place in an area known as Oak Bay. Oak Bay is a municipality of Victoria. As such, it has its own police force and mayor. Approximately 20,000 people call Oak Bay home. Yeah, Oak Bay is a very elite and wealthy area. It has an abundance of old tree-lined streets, ocean views, and nice homes. It's actually situated next to an area known as the Uplands, which is dotted with mansions and golf courses for the rich and powerful. There are also some highly regarded private and public schools in the area. Yeah, so in short, Oak Bay is bougie, as the kids would say. However, there are still quite a few rental apartment buildings in Oak Bay. The cool thing about these mostly 60s walk-up style buildings is that you can rent a nice older apartment in one of the most desirable neighborhoods in Canada. I moved uh, throughout Canada a lot as a kid, so I basically say this every episode, but I lived in Victoria too. Uh, I actually went to Oak Bay High School, but for the record, I bust in from the other side of the tracks. It's still one of my favorite places to visit when I go to Victoria. Okay, so let's get into the victims and the family in this case. In 2017, Chloe and Aubrey lived in the Oak Bay area with their mom and were co-parented by their dad, who had his own apartment in the same neighborhood. Chloe was six and in grade one. Her school photo taken that fall depicts a grinning blonde girl missing a front tooth, dressed in a school uniform. Aubrey was just four years old and had entered into preschool. She had recently started coming into her own, transitioning from a toddler into a child. Photos of Aubrey show a smiling, blue-eyed girl with long, blonde hair. Those who knew the girl spoke about the tremendous spirit of Chloe and Aubrey. They were full of love for their family and friends, and they were loved by everyone. Chloe's aunt described her as a spitfire. Her nanny spoke of her inquisitive mind and her gap-toothed smile and a wonderful laugh. Aubrey was described as mischievous. She threw her head back when she laughed, and she walked almost like she was floating. She loved to sing. She wanted to be a world traveler. It's clear from all accounts that these girls were loved and given great opportunities to succeed in life. The girls loved spending time at the local rec center, the beach, traveling to nearby Gulf Islands, and they had recently been learning horseback riding. The sisters were born to their mother, Sarah Cotton, and their father, Andrew Barry. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the parents, Sarah and Andrew. But we want to be clear that no matter what was disclosed in the papers, online, or in the court testimony, that Sarah is a surviving victim of violence that no mother should know. With trials like this, you often only hear the more salacious side, which is that of the perpetrator. This is due to a heavy amount of the trial that is often focused on defense. But we have done our best to research this case to make sure Sarah and her family's perspective is presented. 
Sarah and Andrew started a romantic relationship in 2009. They both worked and met at the BC Ferries Corporation, which is a major transportation corporation in the province. Andrew Barry and Sarah moved in together in January of 2010. As a couple, they would never marry, but they did start a family. Chloe was the first daughter to come into the couple's lives. She was born in June of 2011. In 2012, Sarah left her job at BC Ferries, but Andrew continued to work there. In January of 2013, the couple gave birth to their second daughter, Aubrey. It was around then that the outward evidence of a fractured relationship began to appear. In September of 2013, Sarah describes the relationship as very bad, very tense, very strained. The couple would go on to split up in 2013. Sarah would continue to reside in their Oak Bay home. Andrew would move into a two-bedroom ground-floor apartment in Oak Bay at Beach Drive and Goodwin. For those that know the area, it's right beside Windsor Park, the Oak Bay Marina, and just a few minutes' walk to Willows Beach. Even though it was a ground-floor apartment in an older building, I cannot imagine that this was a cheap apartment to rent, as this is a very nice area. Outwardly, it would appear that Sarah and Andrew had reached some type of custody agreement. Chloe and Aubrey had a room at Andrew's place, but lived primarily with Sarah. Andrew's parents and his sister also appear to have a lot of involvement in the girls' lives. But things were pretty contentious in the relationship between Andrew and Sarah. Sarah would call the Oak Bay Police Department on September 13, 2013, alleging that Andrew had assaulted her. The effects of that allegation included that he was the subject of a no-contact order which prevented him from seeing his children for a period of time. Sarah would also make three other police reports, one on September 6, 2014, one on July 28, 2015, and the last one on December 1, 2017. Sarah would also report Andrew multiple times to the Ministry of Child and Family Development, including an incident in 2015 where she accused him of inappropriate touching of one of his daughters. This accusation was the result of one of the children having a urinary tract infection, which is sometimes an indicator of sexual abuse. Yeah. These incidents, including the police reports, were determined to be unfounded and went without charge or punishment. Andrew believed that both of these charges were fabricated by Sarah to impact his ability to see Aubrey and Chloe. In fact, while these incidents were being investigated, the accused will generally have no or limited interaction with the children. So apparently, uh, Andrew was asked to attend parenting classes after all of this, but it's unclear if he ever did so. As soon as the relationship broke down, Andrew had a massive resentment towards Sarah. He believed that she had taken intentional steps to, in his words, quote, screw him over and to inflict maximum damage on him personally and financially. It was Andrew's position that Sarah waited until she received an inheritance before, quote, ditching him. He had planned on leaving her and was pissed that she got a leg up on him. Andrew spoke negatively about Sarah to anyone who would listen from 2013 to 2017. This included coworkers, friends, and family members. That's so awkward. Yeah. Yeah, and Andrew's list of grievances were not just towards Sarah. He also had a strained relationship with his parents and his sister. He blamed them for ganging up on him with Sarah. He would express to co-workers that Sarah was ruining him financially and destroying his reputation. At one point, he told people he hated her and he wanted her dead. 
His list of grievances included, and this is in his own written words, quote, ditching me violently to get a leg up in divorce coinciding with inheritance, not seeing the girls for months, greed, lying about her financial position, calling child services before Halloween, misleading the court about its timing and obvious motives, blaming him for Aubrey's head injury and getting away with it, deciding to alter radically his time with the kids just before Chloe's first day at school, just because nine months it took court to repeal that. What does that mean? No, that's just him scrolling down his grievances, and that's how he had written it down. It took nine months for them to relieve it, so his um, his time with the kids was affected for nine months while it was being investigated. Andrew was also upset about a recent decision to move Chloe to a new school. And this is a quote from Andrew. Chloe was forced to change schools against my wishes. My parents were part of it. They made up a story of bullying at Willows, which was the previous school. He went on to explain that over the past four years, he has been, quote, accused of beating Sarah, which he says is false, and getting removed from the house. Accused by Sarah of sexually abusing the kids, which he says is false, and missing Halloween due to this. He was accused by mum and child services for everything, but nothing happened. This is his quote. The grievances against his family included feeling like he was living in exile with the girls, his parents reneging on a deal to advance $50,000 of insurance settlement, his mother feeding Sarah harmful things about Andrew and refusing to stop, the parents supporting Sarah over an incident that had Andrew removed from the house for a year. He also claimed that they called child services against him as revenge for arguing over religion and taking kids to a Baptist church for a Halloween party, which he didn't want them to do. And of course, he felt that they were attempting to convince him that the school the children were attending was a bad school, and he was mad at his parents for suggesting that Sarah handle it. Making things worse for Andrew, his parents sent Sarah money to help pay to send the girls to the school that he didn't want them to go to. Sarah and Andrew would find themselves in five days of family court proceedings in November of 2016. It is believed that Andrew represented himself at the family court trial. So a lot of the information in the public domain seems to be from Andrew's perspective. But we found the family court document titled Cotton v. Barry for this divorce-slash-custody proceeding to help with some balance. So this is where we get to hear some of Sarah's side of the relationship. So according to these court documents, Sarah testified the troubles between her and Andrew began after the death of her father. She stated that Andrew became increasingly critical of her and called her foul names in the presence of the children. Andrew also failed to protect the safety of the children by taking two-year-old Chloe boating without a life jacket and leaving six-month-old Aubrey unsupervised in a stroller. She claimed that when angry, Andrew would drive erratically, speeding, and failing to use turn signals, even with the children in the car. In the summer of 2013, Sarah mentioned possible separation to Andrew. On the 6th of September, 2013, she claims that Andrew threw clothing at her and hit her in the face with a belt buckle. On September 11, 2013, they argued about how Sarah spent their universal child care benefits, and before he left for work, Andrew threw a drink in anger and intimidated her. Andrew sent emails asking for details about Chloe's childcare expenses, and when he came home for lunch, said that he would blow up the house if he did not get a breakdown of what happened to the funds. 
Sarah would state he looked angry and crazed. After lunch, Sarah sent Andrew an email with the details of what she had done with the money. Sarah sent another email stating, quote, I need to know that you'll have calmed down by the time you get home from work today. If you don't, I'll need to take action. I won't live like this anymore. On the night of the 13th of September, the court heard of an incident where Sarah was in bed and Andrew pulled the covers off her and then jumped on her and pinned her to the bed. When she stated she was ready to call the police, he got into his car and drove away. Andrew did not testify about any of these incidents, and the judge accepted Sarah's uncontradicted evidence. So the judge would make her decision in May of 2017. This case started in November 2016, but concluded in May 2017. The order laid down by the judge in the May 31st, 2017 trial gives power to Sarah for making decisions about the children if Andrew does not respond to her within a reasonable period of time. It set out a comprehensive schedule about access, guardianship, including over the holiday periods. It directed Andrew to pay child support, which he was two years behind on. The ruling stated that if the arrears of child support were not paid, that Sarah could set them off against Andrew's interest in the family home. At the end of the family court trial, Andrew would get 40% custody of Chloe and Aubrey. This was actually more than most would have assumed he would get based on his behavior. Yeah, in her detailed May 31st judgment, the judge granted Andrew the right to have the girls for 24 hours beginning at noon on Christmas Eve 2017, and this becomes very important later. The judge wrote that Andrew is, quote, a loving father who has much to offer his daughters, and said it was in their best interest to spend significant time with him. Hmm. The judge also stated, quote, This is not a case where family violence is a significant factor for determining parenting arrangements. So according to Sarah, they had stopped communicating in person. Instead, they relied on emails, texts, and phone calls. Witnesses who saw their in-person interactions would state that the two would not look at one another. Instead, they would look at the ground or on their phones if they met to hand off the children. So just to recap here, we have the breakdown of a relationship with red flags of domestic violence. There's been a vicious custody battle, and Andrew Barry has resentments towards Sarah, as well as his own parents and other family members. Yeah, however, the courts have deemed him a loving father and granted him 40% custody. So let's get into the events leading up to Christmas Day 2017, after a quick break. Hey, True North True Crime listeners, it's us, the hosts of True North True Crime. We are an independently produced and self-funded podcast. And we have recently partnered with Buy Me A Coffee as an easy way for listeners to donate to the podcast. If you want to buy us a coffee or two to help us out with research and recording the podcast, we would really appreciate it. Or if you want to become a yearly member for just $50, we will credit you as an honorary producer of the podcast. Go to buymeacoffee/tntcpod to find out more. And now, back to the episode. And we are back. We are now going to get into the crucial timeline between May 2017 and December 2017. According to Sarah, they were co-parenting, but not co-parenting well. She described the relationship as uncooperative. Text messages and emails show a pretty normal, albeit unfriendly, relationship. Messages detail the logistics of co-parenting. Texts and emails concerning Sparks meetings, which was, you know, young girl guides. 
swim club dates, invitations to parties with friends, a case of pink eye, and the need to work on spelling the word reindeer. But inwardly, Andrew was unraveling. The family court decision would send Andrew into what can only be described as a rapid state of deterioration. In May of 2017, he quit his job, a job he had had for over a decade. His employer suggested that he take a few weeks off of paid vacation, but Andrew refused. He sent out an email and said, you know, thanks everybody, I liked working here, and then he just left. It was at this time that he also cashed in a pension plan. Andrew was also gambling with pretty large sums of money. His primary source of income became online sports betting. At one point, he won upwards of $100,000. But we all know how the story goes with gambling. He apparently lost it all. Andrew would then go on to approach his friends and ask them to hide sums of money in their bank accounts. This was an attempt to hide income from Sarah and the courts. He had also asked friends to help him to hide large payments on gambling sites by giving them the money so that they could make the payments for him. Some refused, and some agreed. Sometimes he would approach them with envelopes filled with thousands of dollars, begging them to hide it for him. People close to Andrew began to see his physical decline. He stopped attending to personal hygiene. He was often dirty, wearing dirty clothes, his apartment was a mess, and a neighbor described his apartment as having things strewn all across the floor. Chaos is an understatement. In August of 2017, his bank sued him to recover $12,000 in outstanding credit card debt. At some point in 2017, he was served an eviction notice for non-payment of rent, but he refused to leave. A neighbor who moved into the apartment directly above Andrews in July of 2015 said she became close with him in the summer of 2017. Neither of them were working, and the two often spent hours talking and drinking coffee at her kitchen table. The first time she saw his apartment, it was messy and dirty, and the walls were lined with children's toys and clothes. It was actually severe, she would state. She went on to say, he told me that Sarah's father died, and that she was set to inherit a sizable amount of money, and as soon as that happened, she wanted him out of the house. She would say that Andrew was always soft-spoken and controlled, but angry and bitter at the same time, especially when he told her things about what happened to him with regards to Sarah. Andrew would say that he felt bad that his mother had sided with Sarah against him. He told her that his mother had complained to social services that he was putting the girls in danger. Andrew also talked to her about his gambling. He told her he had played sports bets and had won $100,000, but then lost it all again in a week. His neighbor would state... Prior to Christmas, he was continually betting and talking to me about it. He told me he was down to his last $10,000 and was waiting for the results. We didn't directly talk about it after that. He deteriorated pretty hard after that. I observed him to be isolating more. She described an incident in September or October 2017 when Andrew came to her apartment with an envelope bulging with cash and asked if she would help him pay a bill to the Lottery Corporation. Andrew pleaded with her and said it was really important. She said, No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not comfortable. He suddenly took three swift steps towards her, and his face was right in her face, and he softly said, We'll talk about this later. Andrew later apologized and said he had handled it badly. At one point, he told her, I'm in so much debt, you wouldn't believe it. A few weeks before Christmas, Andrew came to her door, head down, 
arms hanging by his side. She said he hadn't shaved for days. His hair didn't look clean. His teeth didn't look clean. His clothes didn't look clean. He said to her, quote, The girls are coming, and I don't have any food for their lunches. Andrew apologized for bothering her, and she gave him lots of fruit and peanut butter. A few days later, about two weeks before Christmas, Andrew asked her for food again, and she gave him some. She would state, I was a bit terse the second time. He was humble. He was very polite. He asked me, please. I wouldn't ask if it wasn't really important. Andrew would again ask his neighbor for a $30 loan at some point. He was anxious and tense. She had anticipated the request and planned ahead of time that she would give him some money, but on the condition that he never asked her again. She would say, I only gave him $15. And Andrew said, okay, that's okay. I'll take that. A few days before Christmas, Andrew asked her to cash a check from the city of Victoria, and she refused. Quote, I was a little bit annoyed at his persistence. I felt bad for him. Again, he said he was embarrassed and please. But I said, look, I'm not your ATM and I'm not going to be your ATM. On December 22nd, Barry knocked on her door, came in and sat down in an easy chair. I sat on the couch and kind of waited. He would say, it's just so nice to be here with you. And then we had this wonderful visit. We didn't speak about money. We didn't talk about family. It was quite lovely. That was the last time she saw Andrew. At some point in December, Andrew Barry's power had been shut off for non-payment. He had been living in darkness for quite a while. On December 21st, 2017, which was Sarah's birthday, she dropped Chloe and Aubrey off at Andrew's apartment. They had made arrangements for the girls to stay at Andrew's until noon on Christmas Day. She noticed the apartment was dark, and one of the sisters even remarked that staying at Dad's was like camping because they used flashlights to see. Of course, she didn't really say anything to Andrew at the time about the power being out because she had concerns about how he would react. So after she dropped the kids off with Andrew, she sent him an email saying that if he didn't have power at his place to let her know and she could come by the following day to pick the girls up. She didn't receive a reply. The next day, which was the 22nd of December, she said she dropped off one of Chloe's stuffed animals at Andrew Barry's apartment and the children asked her how many nights they would have to stay there. She remembers knocking on the window and Chloe coming to the window in a dragon costume with a tail. She hugged her girls and said goodbye. Sarah said that on December 22nd, Andrew just looked very distant, very far away, as if he was thinking about something else. Sarah later sent other messages to Andrew that he did not respond to, including one email in the afternoon of December 22nd, 2017, in which she told him that she was concerned he had not responded to an earlier email and suggested a modified custody arrangement over Christmas if he didn't have electricity. Quote, I'm worried that there isn't working heat or fridge or stove. How are you cooking meals for them and keeping food fresh? It's dark right now for over 14 hours a day, and I don't think that's good for them to be surrounded by darkness for that long. He did not respond. Yeah, and she was using an app um, to let her know when he had read emails, and he had read those emails. Um, And then at some point, he just stopped reading emails. So we're going to start to talk about Christmas Day 2017, and we want to remind listeners that these details are disturbing. So please use discretion or skip ahead a few minutes. 
At noon on Christmas Day 2017, Sarah waited at her home for Andrew to return Chloe and Aubrey. This was the arrangement they had made that was also in line with the custody agreement that was handed down by the court. She tried to reach out to him through email and text message, but he did not respond. So this was like at 2 o'clock. The yeah. whole family had gathered around, including his parents, and the girls had still not been returned. On Christmas morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she went to his apartment several times, but saw no signs of anyone home. The lights were out, which again was not super surprising considering he had had no power. But no sounds were coming from the apartment when she looked into the windows. She searched the local recreation center as well as the nearby parks. Eventually, Sarah and Andrew's mother went to the Oak Bay Police Department to report the situation and ask for police intervention. Andrew's father stayed at Sarah's house in hopes that Andrew would return with the girls, but he did not. The following is the testimony of the police officers that arrived at the Beach Drive apartment in the early evening hours of December 25th, 2017. As we mentioned in the intro, Constable Peter Ulanowski gained access to the apartment by the building manager. When he opened the door, the apartment was pitch black and in disarray. There was a large amount of blood, and the officer saw what looked like the body of a child lying on a bed. He closed the door and stepped back into the hallway to call for backup. The officer would later state, quote, I saw a dead kid in there. How was I supposed to act? I see a dead girl on the bed. How am I going to process that? I'm not a robot. The constable would call Sergeant Mike Martin for backup. Martin, who was watch commander of the shift, said he got a call from Ulanowski asking for help, with Ulanowski saying the words bloodshed and anarchy. Martin said he ran out of the police detachment, jumped into his police vehicle, and turned on the lights and siren, driving quickly to the nearby apartment. Martin said he saw Ulanowski in front of the apartment building with his flashlight over his head and waving it in a circular fashion. He said he ran out of the car and told his colleague they needed to go into the apartment. The two men entered the suite with Ulanowski taking the lead, said Martin. The apartment was dark, requiring the two officers to use their flashlights, he said. Martin said he took his firearm out and entered the suite, finding blood on the floor and blood on the doorframe. Ulanowski spotted a man in the bathroom, and Martin said he proceeded past Ulanowski into the living room in an effort to see if anyone else was in the apartment. Ulanowski, meanwhile, went into the bathroom where he encountered a naked and injured man who later turned out to be Andrew Barry. Ulanowski told Sergeant Martin that there were two bedrooms. He turned around and came back in the direction he had come and entered the first bedroom. Quote, There was nobody else present in the bedroom except a small child on the bed, Martin said. The child was laying face down with her hair splayed behind her and wearing her pajamas. She didn't appear to be breathing, and I checked for a pulse, said Martin. Sergeant Martin could not find a pulse and noted that the child was cool to the touch and appeared considerably stiffer than he would have anticipated. The girl had what appeared to be blood on her upper body and some lacerations. I entered the second bedroom and there didn't appear to be anybody there either except for a smaller child on the bed. I approached the smaller child as well. She too was facing away from me. Her hair too was splayed out. She had pajamas on and there appeared to be blood on her head and upper body area. The second girl was also cold to the touch and had no pulse and appeared to have lacerations all over her body. 
Now we are going to get into some details that we know of how the sisters died. Chloe was struck in the head with an object consistent with a pink children's baseball bat that was broken and found tangled in her hair. At least once, hard enough to fracture her skull, and it could have caused her death on its own. She was then stabbed 26 times on both her front and back. Aubrey was stabbed 32 times on her front and back. There are more details in the court documents, but let's just leave it at that. Andrew was found naked in his bathtub with multiple stab wounds to his neck and chest. He was rushed to the hospital where he made a recovery. Andrew Barry is right-handed. All of his injuries were in areas that he could reach himself, on the left side of his chest and on the left side of his neck. The chest wounds were all superficial and consistent with having been caused by a sharp implement like a kitchen knife. The neck wounds consisted of several shallow lacerations and one deeper laceration that severed the cartilage supporting Andrew Barry's trachea. In the apartment, the police would find a suicide note written by Andrew Barry. Police would also find a note, a bowl of bunny crackers, and a toothbrush that Chloe and Aubrey had left out for Santa. On December 30th, 2017, a candlelight vigil was held at Willows Beach in Oak Bay. Thousands were in attendance. The grief of the community was visceral. In the first week of January 2018, Andrew Barry would be arrested and charged with the murder of his two daughters, Chloe and Aubrey. A massive investigation would be launched by a combination of Victoria Police Department, Oak Bay Police Department, Saanich Police Department, and the RCMP. So let's get into the trial and Andrew Barry's defense after a quick break. And we are back. Pre-trial motions would start for the trial of Andrew Barry in early 2019. The jury trial would start in April of 2019 and last until late September 2019. The prosecution's position was that Andrew killed his daughters when he became destitute and knew that he would lose custody of Chloe and Aubrey. He then failed to die by suicide, which was his plan. Andrew Barry would plead not guilty to the crimes. His claim was that he was targeted by a 50-year-old Asian man named Paul. Paul was apparently a loan shark that Andrew owed money to. Andrew and his defense team would state that a, quote, dark-skinned, dark-haired man entered the apartment, murdered the girls, beat and stabbed Andrew, stripped him naked, and then put him in the bathtub. Then the alleged dark-skinned, dark-haired attacker left, leaving no DNA or evidence of the attack. Nor did the attacker leave fingerprints on the weapons found at the scene those weapons being a child's baseball bat and a kitchen knife. Andrew would state that he woke up on Christmas Day, the girls opened presents, had breakfast, and then they went tobogganing at a nearby golf course, twice during the course of the day. It's important to note here that there were no gifts, gift wrapping, or present boxes, or any evidence of any Christmas morning activities in the apartment. There were no witnesses or anyone who saw them allegedly going to or from the golf course where they tobogganed twice on Christmas Day. Keep in mind this is Christmas Day. There aren't a lot of people on the streets and these girls were very recognizable. Also, everybody in that apartment complex is home. Yeah. So they would have seen them leaving. I mean, if they're looking, I'm just saying that everyone is home to see them coming and going. 
I've driven down Beach Drive on Christmas Day and you would see people and recognize people walking mm. along, especially if they were carrying toboggans and like two, you know, cute kids or whatever. Yeah, I know for us, like our Christmas Day, we we tend to open presents, have breakfast. And then because there's not a heck of a lot to do when you're about to eat another giant meal, like the activity to do is go for a walk. Go for a walk with the family, right? Mm. Um, so that is his alibi. Um, after that, he doesn't remember what happened after they went tobogganing, except that an attacker showed up to the apartment on Christmas Day and murdered his daughters because he owed money to some mysterious loan shark. In his testimony, Barry told the jury that two henchmen connected to the loan shark visited his apartment and stored bags of drugs in the months before the attack on Christmas Day. Yeah, so I think what he's trying to do there is say that they had keys or means of entering the apartment because keep in mind the apartment was locked yeah so the only person that could do it was somebody who had access or a key to the apartment yeah or andrew Andrew barry there was no evidence to support andrew's theory or this claim that there were two henchmen the prosecutor would describe andrew's defense like the plot from a bad low-budget movie yeah this prosecutor did not like andrew barry He went on to say, quote, Like everything in his life, he won't accept his responsibility. There was no Paul, no dark-skinned child murderer. Barry's entire story of Christmas Day is a lie. So let's get into some evidence in this case. The evidence against Andrew Barry was overwhelming. And the fact that he made his family, Sarah, and the community go through a trial is further evidence to Andrew's character. The prosecution had forensics, neighbor testimony, the testimony of the hospital staff, social workers, and the testimony of his own friends and family. Keep in mind the apartment was also locked from the inside and the murder weapons were also found in the apartment and were owned by Andrew Barry. Yeah, there was also a suicide note at the scene. At the hospital, Andrew Barry was unable to speak because of his injuries, so he responded to his sister in a handwritten note that said, quote, I don't remember what I did, but I tried suicide. I left a note on the table. I don't know why my eye is black. Barry ends the note by saying that his ex-wife, quote, treated me so like I didn't matter. Mom was joining in. The lies created to get their way was absurd, and I couldn't stand up to them. At the hospital, he would complain about his parents and his ex-partner, but he didn't ask about Chloe and Aubrey. Yeah, so this is very telling already. But you know what gets me is he has said that he was attacked by an attacker, but then he admits to his sister that he tried suicide. So those two things completely cancel each other out. Yeah, well, later on, he goes on to try and claim that the suicide note was from a different time. But he just said that he tried suicide that day. So he's just completely contradicting himself all over the place here. DNA evidence at the scene showed evidence of only three people in the apartment. Andrew, Chloe, and Aubrey. Forensic evidence would show no sign of forced entry. His neighbor would describe what she heard on Christmas Day. At around 8 a.m., she heard a big thump from Barry's apartment and assumed that the girls were up, although it wasn't the usual noise that they made in the morning. She goes on to say, within an hour, I was hearing real loud crashing. So of course, this is between 8 and 9 a.m., right? And it wasn't nonstop. I would hear something really heavy. It sounded like, to me, like a, a bookcase coming down, crashing on the floor. 
and then there would be nothing. It would be quiet for a while. I was thinking to myself, this was very odd. And then there'd be another crash. She didn't hear the girls running around or running up and down the hallway like she normally did, or hear their voices at all that morning. I just heard this crashing. At one point, I was standing above his big oak table, and I heard what I believe was that table coming down. That floor, the walls, the window, everything would move. It was loud, and there was movement in the building. Concerned and confused, she went to visit the neighbor who lived on the third floor above her. Both heard one more really loud thump, she testified. It sounded like something large being dropped. During the afternoon, she heard a little bit of water running. Later in the afternoon, she heard persistent buzzing at the front door of the apartment building and went down to let a police officer in. Yeah, so remember, he said that this attack happened at, at in the yeah, early they had evening. Gone, yeah, they had gone tobogganing and everything, but, but I don't think that ever happened. No, and she's clearly testifying that whatever was going on down there started at 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So this trial was a contentious affair. Uh, experienced court reporters remarked at the unusual amount of objections from both the Crown and the defense that sent the jurors tracing in and out of the courtroom. Like, they were getting removed from the court and brought back in, removed, brought back in. The defense lawyer, Kevin McCullough, quickly developed a reputation for aggressive cross-examination techniques on the witnesses. The jury heard him accuse both Sarah, the grieving mother of the two murdered girls, and Barry's older sister of fabricating evidence to support the prosecution. McCullough described Sarah as Machiavellian and called Andrew Barry's sister scheming. At one point, the defense attorney challenged Sarah's testimony about her seeing toys in the snow uh, behind Andrew Berry's apartment, and she just looked at him and gave this great response. She said, My children died on Christmas Day, so my memory about snow toys may not be perfect, adding that she was focused on getting her children back alive that day. Later, there was another heated exchange between Sarah and the lawyer again, um, where he asked her, like, which windows did you knock on and what did you see? And she said, again, my children died on Christmas Day. And he looks at her and he says, yeah, well, so did Mr. Barry's children. To which Sarah looked stunned and tearful as she just sat there on the stand being grilled by this defense lawyer. So Andrew Barry would take the stand in his own defense and would testify and be cross-examined for five days. It's super unusual. His testimony was inconsistent. He couldn't remember details between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. At one point, he said they went swimming on Christmas Eve, but evidence proved the rec center was closed at the time. He was unable to explain the shallow hesitation-style stab marks on his body. He changed his testimony about which direction they walked to go sledding on Christmas Day. Yeah, he couldn't explain why there was no Christmas boxes. He claimed the suicide note found at his apartment was written earlier in the year on a previous attempt at ending his own life. At one point, the prosecutor just stated, are you making stuff up as you go along here? Yeah, sounds like it. On Thursday, September 26, 2019, after a trial that lasted more than five months in Vancouver, BC's Supreme Court, the 12-person jury took two days to deliberate before reaching their verdict. The jury would find Andrew Berry guilty on two counts of second-degree murder causing the death of his children, Chloe, and Aubrey Berry. So a second-degree murder charge brings an automatic life sentence, but the judge had to determine Barry's parole eligibility and whether he would serve time for the murders consecutively or concurrently. 
The prosecutor had asked the judge to sentence Barry to serve 21 to 24 years before being eligible for parole, while his lawyer asked for 15 to 20 years. On December 19, 2019, the judge would announce her ruling at a sentencing hearing. The judge weighed out the aggravating and mitigating circumstances before sentencing. Now, normally you would see a relatively equal list of points on each side of the ledger. But in this case, the judge could only list one mitigating factor against five aggravating factors. The only mitigating factor was that Andrew Barry had never been convicted of a crime before. The following aggravating factors were listed in the sentencing document. Again, this will be graphic. So the first aggravating factor, and this is a quote from the document, there are two victims of Mr. Barry's actions, and they are his children. Chloe and Aubrey were under 18 years of age, and Mr. Barry abused his position of trust and authority in relation to them. Chloe and Aubrey were six and four, respectively. They could not have fought back or defended themselves from these attacks. Neither showed any clear evidence of defensive wounds. The second aggravating factor were that Chloe and Aubrey loved their father. Others observed Mr. Barry to be a loving father toward them. Despite his obligations to protect his daughters, Mr. Barry offended their trust in him. He was selfish and obsessed with punishing his ex and his parents. He chose to murder the children on Christmas Day and turned a joyous holiday into a harrowing one for all of the victims. Mr. Barry used weapons including Chloe's bat and the knife. At some point, he changed the weapon that he was using on Chloe to end her life. Here's the third aggravating factor, and this one again is graphic. Um, quote, the attacks on the children were extremely vicious. It amounted to overkill. Chloe was hit in the head with a bat with such force that her skull fractured. Both girls had repeated stab wounds administered before and after death on their fronts and backs. Both attacks took some time to carry out, and at least one of them was not spontaneous. The second attack occurred after Mr. Barry had seen the effect of his actions on the first daughter that was murdered. The children were murdered in separate rooms that required Mr. Barry to move between them. This demonstrates some conscious forethought and deliberate action. The girls were killed in their own beds, in their own home, where they had every expectation that they were safe. The final aggravating factor was that Chloe and Aubrey were victims in Mr. Barry's domestic battle. Their murder was to inflict the ultimate pain on his ex-wife. The victim impact statements have demonstrated the profound devastation and permanent consequences that Mr. Barry's actions have had on the girl's relatives, their nanny, on their young friends, and on those friends' parents, on teachers in their schools, on first responders, and on the community. The judge would finally state the following. Mr. Barry committed heinous crimes upon his own young daughters. He did so in a vicious and cruel manner. His sentence must reflect the principles of denunciation and deterrence. The period of parole ineligibility must reflect the high degree of moral culpability of Mr. Barry. I sentence Mr. Barry to the mandatory sentence of life imprisonment to be served with no eligibility for parole for 22 years on each count of second-degree murder to be served concurrently. So that means he's only going to be in jail for 22 years before he can Well, actually apply. 19 because the trial took so yeah. long. So in 2039, Andrew Barry may start applying for parole even though he murdered 
his two daughters, which yeah. I think is a failure in our justice system personally. Yeah, we don't have in Canada, we don't have those consecutive sentences of, you know, 350 years or whatever. We have these parole mandates that are based on denunciation and deterrence, but also the concept of rehabilitation. But get this, within minutes after sentencing, minutes, Andrew Barry would file an appeal on 10 counts of what he believed proved that he was the victim of an unfair trial and excessive sentencing. Excessive sentencing. Yeah, even though he actually, like his his own lawyers had asked for what, 15 to 20? And mm-hmm. he got 22. And the other part too is that Sarah and the family are going to get dragged into these parole trials. I know. And, it's, it, and even the fact that he went to trial and the fact that now he has filed an appeal and then the fact that he'll have these parole trials just further exacerbates this thing that yeah, should have ended with divorce. So legal experts have weighed in on him filing for appeal. And they stated that it's going to take at least a year or more for this appeal to come to fruition. Now, we're a year out from it now, but we had COVID-19, which has clogged up the court systems. So Barry would have um, to order all the transcripts from the pro- trial, which would um, include two and a half months of pretrial motions, six months of the jury trial. Uh, And that's no small undertaking to get all of those documents. He would then have to file an appeal book with all of the pertinent documents. Following that, he would need to file a statement of the facts of the case. Then the Crown will have to file a response. Only when all of those things have been accomplished, transcripts, appeal books, statements of facts filed, then they'll be able to schedule a date for the oral hearing. Also, it's not uncommon for a different lawyer to act for the appeal than the one who represented the defendant during the trial. Hiring another lawyer would add to the length of the process since a new lawyer would have to read and digest the transcripts and establish possible grounds for appeal. Yeah, there also could be problems with funding the appeal because obviously the evidence of the trial revealed that Andrew Barry is financially destitute. So that means he can apply for legal aid, and legal aid would need to ensure that the, the appeal had merit. However, for a murder conviction, unless the appeal is clearly without merit, it's likely that funding would be provided. So in most cases of murder trial appeals, legal aid will take care of the trial. That means that Andrew Barry would qualify for legal aid. The fallout from the murders of Aubrey and Chloe has been beyond traumatizing. Children have been left to ask questions about why their friends are no longer alive. Their schools have repeatedly brought in counselors to help the children of Oak Bay and their families. Yeah, this small seaside community of Oak Bay may never heal. Residents still remember vividly seeing police cars and ambulances speeding past their windows on Christmas Day. First responders from that day have reported symptoms of PTSD. Kevin Murdoch, the mayor of Oak Bay, spoke after the sentencing hearing. He said, This doesn't change anything. The girls are still gone. It's hard to describe the emotions hearing the verdict. Definitely a relief. He said that once the verdict was read, he had to leave the courthouse. He had a feeling like Someone had kicked him in the gut, so he called his daughter, who's not far off from the ages of Chloe and Aubrey. He said he just wanted to hear her voice. Murdoch says he hopes this verdict brings some peace to the first responders who dealt with the case as well. Quote, Having to go through the trial, it's been hard, and I think this will help those people a lot. Just knowing they went through all of that for something, he says, that there's an outcome here. 
Clearly, no one has suffered more than Sarah and her family, and that includes Andrew's parents and Andrew's sister. So we wanted to share some of Sarah's victim impact statement with you. My name is Sarah, and I am the mother of Chloe and Aubrey Berry. Anything I say does not articulate the depth of my grief and loss, as this is a nightmare that I can never wake up from. Since December 25th, 2017, I have tried to comprehend an egregious act that is incomprehensible. This trial was the antithesis of the healing process. I was re-traumatized by all of the details that were revealed and made public through the media. I would brace myself every day for new information that I was not previously aware of. My identity is gone. My social role has had to change. I am no longer the mother who takes her children to school every day, making their meals, caring for them, ensuring they are safe and having the best life possible. I now feel a deep void and an emptiness that will never go away. I have recurring dreams that I am trying to keep Chloe and Aubrey safe from Andrew, as well as dreams where I do not have my girls, and I feel such an emptiness without them. I had to organize my children's funeral, have Chloe and Aubrey cremated and bury their ashes. No mother should ever have to do this. I am concerned with what happens next, as I fear for my safety if I have contact with Andrew. I dread the day I have to begin attending multiple parole hearings. The pain and trauma and psychological harm will only continue if this has to be revisited every few years. I was so honored to be their mother. That's all I ever wanted to be. And I was a mother before anything else. Our house hummed with the energy, the giggles, fast little footsteps, and sometimes tears. There was so much life and joy in our house, and now it has gone silent. My daughters deserved to live a long, full life. Andrew, as their father, was to put their happiness ahead of his own. They will never experience the world around them. They wanted to travel to other countries, and now they will not get to learn about other cultures or get an understanding of this world. Life is such a beautiful and precious thing, and Andrew took that away from Chloe and Aubrey. When asked shortly before they died, what the best thing was about Christmas. Both Chloe and Aubrey replied, being with my family, and neither one of them had a chance to do that. Sarah has been rightfully critical of the Ministry of Child and Family Development. She states, I believe the family law system and the Ministry of Child and Family Development failed us leading up to the girls' deaths. I did everything in my power to keep my children safe. However, my concerns made to MCFD about my children's well-being in their father's care and Andrew's mental health fell on deaf ears. This has prompted reviews of the handling of this case by the police, the Ministry of Child and Family Development, and the Office of the Representative for Children and Youth. In a scathing paper written by the University of British Columbia Law Review titled Paternal Filicide and Coercive Control, Reviewing the Evidence in Cotton v. Berry, Contributors Lori Chambers, Deb Zweep, and Nadia Varelli would conclude the following about the family court hearings that preceded the deaths of Aubrey and Chloe. This case provides clear evidence. Basic reforms are required in assessment, adjudication, and accountability if the family court is to retain its legitimacy as an arbiter of family matters. Child welfare workers, lawyers working in divorce and custody proceedings, 
and the courts need to understand power dynamics and be able to recognize signs of coercive control. We must provide protection and support for women and children trapped in relationships with abusive men and increase the education of lawyers, courts, and the public with regard to coercive control. Deaths such as those of the Barry children are not inexplicable. It is unconscionable, not simply heartbreaking, to allow them to continue. Yeah, this paper is really focused on coercive control, which is more of an insidious form of abuse that people are not necessarily trained to see. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's quite subtle things like him representing himself in the family court trial. He could have had a lawyer. Mm -hmm. He had the money. But he chose to face Sarah and question her and stuff like that, which is a form of control and abuse. And there are all these red flags that happened, but the family court system is designed to keep families together to not try to look at families as this nuclear family concept, but to understand that families are in different makeups and that they should still all be allowed to be in one another's lives. Yeah. And so the, the court wasn't really trained to look for the subtle undercurrents of abuse that were occurring. And keep in mind, the Ministry of Child and Family Development in the province of British Columbia was heavily underfunded for 16 years under the previous government that was in place too. So in June of 2019, a bursary fund was set up in Chloe and Aubrey's names. In their memory, their mother and the community wished to provide bursaries for students attending Christchurch Cathedral School. The Chloe and Aubrey Berry Bursary Fund will be used to support a bursary for two girls each year entering kindergarten or grade one. And we'll link that in the show notes. So that brings us to the end of this episode. We recognize that this was a hard episode to listen to. Our hearts go to the families and the community that was affected by this horrific tragedy. If you are seeking help escaping family violence, you can receive immediate help by calling or texting 1-800-563-0808. If you or someone you know is struggling with harmful or suicidal thoughts in Canada, you can text START, S-T-A-R-T, to 741-741, or call 833-456-4566. Thank you for continuing to listen to our podcast. We love our listeners and we wish you all a positive and prosperous new year. And thank you to our honorary producers, Alberta Bly and Amy's Book Review. We will be back with a new episode in two weeks. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, you guys.